You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. We've got a great guest coming on the program today, Robert Hoagland. You're listening to uh, Dave Smuda-Smith's Save It, the Mother Earth Boogie, as uh, our opening intro to the show. Dave uh, sent it to us to uh, play on the show. Thanks to Dave. And uh, check out Dave on his Spotify and Apple Music. Also check out us at climatechange.com. We also are on Spotify and Apple Music. Also send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Um, the purpose of a climate change is to bring world-class leaders and thinkers and doers to engage our listeners, to empower our audience to act and volunteer, invest and vote in a way that protects our environment. To that objective, we're having Robert Hoagland on the program today, who's a cutting-edge thinker, doer, and leader. So uh, Robert heads up Marginal Carbon. He wrote a paper, Removing Carbon Now. He he also led a movement in Sweden that helped establish a world-leading goal to reduce Swedish consumption based upon greenhouse gas emissions. And first, they had to measure the amount of consumption based upon emissions. And as I read from uh, Robert's studies, they were showing about 11 tons of consumption per year of carbon from just the consuming of products made outside of Sweden, and then approximately six tons per person in, in 2012 from the production of things within Sweden, which is 17 tons a person, which is quite a lot. And then Sweden's kind of on the cutting edge. They, uh, one of the cities, Gothenburg, probably mispronouncing that, set a target by 2035 of bringing that down to 3.5 tons of carbon or, or CO2 equivalents per person, which is a pretty audacious goal. So in addition to creating new world leading standards and goals, Robert's a fund manager of Milky Wire. And Milky Wire focuses on investing in the most impactful, sustainable climate projects and creating a portfolio. So there's a number of exciting technologies that Milky Wire is investing in, such as carbon capture, uh, an SF San Francisco company, Heirloom, as well as uh, silicate, which takes uh, waste minerals and spreads it in the fields to capture CO2. So some amazing work that Robert's engaged in. We're talking about technologies that could capture hundreds of millions of tons of carbon or CO2 emissions each year. Now, uh, we've got 35 billion tons that were emitted in 2020, so we've got a long way to bring that down, but uh, this is definitely a move in the right direction. Robert, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for uh, coming on. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Sweden in particular. Let's start off with that in the reduction in the consumption of of carbon and focusing on that goal. Because I think uh, mm. it's something that many of us have not focused on. We don't necessarily think of the impact beyond our borders and the fact that we're buying products in China or made in other places that have a very substantial carbon footprint before mm. they ever hit the shores of our, of our country. Yeah. So the most common way to calculate a country's emissions is the production-based uh, approach, where you look at what happens within the country, all the industries and, and the cars and, and, and production within the country. But in addition to that, you're also, as you say, importing a lot of products and those have emissions too. Uh, and you're also exporting. And for a country like the US, the numbers for export and import are, are similar. Um, your emissions from a consumption-based and a production-based perspective is not so different, but as your domestic emissions goes down and maybe other countries don't have 
as ambitious plans. So, you know, China it's, uh, plans to have about the same emissions by 2030 as today. The consumption-based emissions might be much higher than what happens within the, within the country. And for a country like Sweden and also uh, United Kingdom, Switzerland, um, Luxembourg, small smaller places that have also uh, import a lot of their things, the consumption-based emissions are much higher than what happens within the country. So the sort of largest footprint in those countries are, are from outside the country because it's final consumption within Sweden of buildings and, and, and goods and services and, and food, et cetera, that's causing those emissions, even though they're produced in other countries. And what I did in 2015 was to start a um, coalition of organizations, NGOs like uh, WWF and others in Sweden that have been pushing the government to add a target to also address these um, emissions from, from consumption. Um, there's a lot a country can do to try to shift its uh, consumption to be more environmentally friendly in terms of uh, different types of policies um, can be things to do with uh, with tax can be building code uh, how you calculate the emissions from buildings can be the public procurement etc and we worked on it for a long time and, and finally there was an environmentally committee and it, all the parties in parliament agreed that we should have a target like that but still hasn't become law it's a new government now so we're, we're waiting for it to be become law but it's it's been very um, uh, publicized and, and well-known in Sweden now. And, and, and there is this cross-parliamentarian agreement, so hopefully it will also become become a, a, a new target and, and, and have stronger strategies to, to address it. And it, it becomes also more important if you're decarbonizing more and more yourself, and, but the ones that you're, you're trading from are not. And it's similar to how companies work with Scopri. Uh, they have their indirect emissions. Many companies have most of their emissions happening outside their own supply chain so they're not they're buying goods and services and other things from, from other companies and that's their scope free emissions and and for many companies 99 or 95 percent of their emissions comes from scope free and it's similar to what consumption-based emissions is for countries right i think it's very important to look at take a hard look at where these emissions are coming from so we can do a better job of reducing them and one of those ways kind of looking down the supply chain and picking the places that produce things the most ethically and with the least amount of environmental impact and so the more we look and then choose manufacturers that have a lower carbon footprint, then they're starting to compete on a different basis than just price or quality of goods, but to actually do it in a environmentally safe way. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what are the things that are going to be done, say, in Sweden? What is part of this legislation that would encourage Swedish companies individuals as consumers as well as governmental entities to change their behavior to look down the supply chain and change the companies they're working with or encourage them to act cleaner and greener mm. well um all the policies that would be needed to fulfill the goal uh, wasn't part of the, the proposal so it's something that we need to come later and hopefully this new government is, is going to to adopt it although it's it's different parties in government now than when this environmental committee um, came out with this. But, but as I said, all the it's a cross-parliamentarian uh, agreement on it, so hopefully it still will happen. But some of the things that could be done are, for example, having um, lower prices on, on things like uh, repairing things, uh, making it easier for, for the circle economy, uh, benefits for, for sharing uh, sharing services like um sharing cars or or, or um, um 
tools, etc. But I think a lot, many of the big emissions come from, let's say, public procurement. So when the, when the public sector procures a lot of things, uh, like food and buildings and, and cars, etc., if they have strong demands that they need to bring those down, bring their own scope-free emissions down, and, and select suppliers that have have low emissions, then that would have a, a huge effect. Currently, there's no such demand, and I don't think any countries have that. There's probably just some paragraph saying you should take into account the environmental part, but it's price that's uh, that's steering the public procurement. I think another good example is the building sector, where in Sweden there is um there is a need to know how much emission you have per building, so there's a new requirement. And there's also proposals from a, um, a governmental agency that you can introduce targets that are getting stricter every year uh, for how many grams of emission or kilos or, or tons of emission you can have per square feet or square meter of a new building. So it, it progressively becomes stricter and stricter. And that's also that's something that would uh, save a huge amount of emission. But a lot of those emissions are coming from other countries today because it's imported goods and materials. So that's also an uh, an example and then on, on flights is another another one where you need to introduce taxes or for for reducing consumption flights but also to to do for example sustainable aviation fuel or fuel or carbon removal to make up for those uh, those flights that are happening i hear there's a new word in swedish which relates to people who take the train instead of flying and uh telling people about hey i'm i'm taking the train instead of flying and saving some emissions i mean mm. yeah yeah flieg scam you're thinking about the shame of flying the shame yeah. of flying <laughs> yeah you know uh i guess uh we haven't gotten to that point quite yet in the U.S. Unfortunately, our rail system is third yeah. world, uh, so it's really hard for an American to take the train, or it's certainly more challenging than, say, if you lived in Europe or in Japan, where you have incredible train systems. Actually, Ukraine has a better train system than the United States, mm. which is kind of telling you a little bit about uh, the state of our train system. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and we'll be right back in just one minute with Robert Hoagland and talking about removing carbon from our system and what are the best ways of doing this. Robert's an expert in this area, and we'll talk to him in just uh, one minute about it. some great ideas he has. to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Robert Hoagland on the program. Robert, you just described some efforts in Sweden to reduce the amount of CO2 emissions in the country as well as in the supply chain and consuming products. I'm wondering if uh, just a straight carbon tax is maybe the most efficient way of doing this. It's certainly been floated here in the U.S., but uh, has been kind of shot down on many occasions or put on the back burner. Isn't that really the most efficient way for us to push both consumers and producers in the right direction? Encourage the right behavior. A carbon tax is, uh, is a good measure to be implemented. Sweden has had one for several decades, and it's about $100 per ton. Um, and But it's mostly applied on the sale of of uh, fuels, so uh, gasoline and diesel and heating oil, etc. 
it has we don't have do any heating oil anymore so we don't warm up our, our houses with with oil that's completely phased out and i think uh, the, the carbon tax did helped a bit but it's also the oil crisis uh, um 40 50 years ago but it has had an effect on on driving so it, i think analysis show that driving would be the emissions from from road sector would be even higher without the, the carbon tax but but the tax wasn't enough to sort of shift everyone to electric vehicles because they weren't cheap electric vehicles so i think a tax works if there's an alternative if, if there's no easy alternative then uh, many times people just pay more right it depends on what it is and economists will tell you a lot more about this and uh, the elasticity uh, of different sort of goods and services and it's not enough on its own you also need to have the alternative, something to to do instead, such as electric cars that are reasonably priced. Right. I noticed when I was in um, Amsterdam as well as Copenhagen that so many people rode their bikes everywhere. I mean, it's really so much more of a bike culture. Yeah. And how do we encourage people in the U.S. to ride their bikes places and and save a lot of uh, gas that way? Definitely. It's hard to recreate those uh, sort of medieval uh, infrastructures that, that were in, in Europe, but I think there's a lot of things ca that can be done uh, in the U.S. as well. Well, it's kind of fascinating that the medieval infrastructure encourages good modern behavior. Yeah. Uh, any, country, any city that was built before the invention of the car, like it's, it's, uh, it looks a lot better and it's a lot more livable, in my opinion, than the cities that were built uh, post sort of the introduction of the automobile. Uh, you know, you're not going to get an argument from me on that front, so we're going to have to move on to something else. Tell us a little bit about Milky Wire. You're a fund manager there, and uh, tell us what Milky Wire is and, and what you're doing with that yeah. project. Milky Wire is an impact platform that gets more funds into environmental organizations and helps companies support good good projects and get reporting back. Uh, two years ago, I set up... Um, fund for for milky wire which is a shareable fund it's not an equity fund <clears throat> and it's called a climate transformation fund and companies are donating to that based on internal carbon fee so they're taxing themselves voluntarily and we're using the money to help reach global climate targets through both grants to effective organizations but also pre-purchases uh, of carbon removal so that it's within three areas it's durable carbon removal so new technologies that are needed uh, to help and get to net zero and that sector is very underdeveloped today and very nascent most companies are still in the lab and coming up with new ideas and, and by supporting them you can kickstart it and help those solutions become viable and also restoring and protecting nature uh, we have a lot of problems with deforestation and, and potential also to to restore carbon into into trees and then thirdly products that are working directly on decarbonization so both um technical projects, but mostly advocacy and policy. So there's a lot of research groups that have showed that the most cost-effective way of spending your, your climate dollars is often to support organizations that are pushing for tougher policy, um, getting more money into climate solutions, working on advocacy and, and, and policy around the world. So we should be giving to organizations that are affecting policy changes at the governmental level because that will drive change. It's part of it. Yeah, it's one of the effective solutions. And to this fund, there, there's a bunch of corporate donors done. So like Klarna, so Swedish FinTech and Spotify, as you as you, as you know, uh, you're on as well, also donated to, to the fund. And we are now selecting our projects for 2023 uh, to to be supported and have done a call for proposals and 
talked to a lot of exciting companies within carbon removal and, and decarbonization and, and forest protection and are getting ready to uh, yeah support these these solutions in, in, in this year. So how many companies uh, are you currently working with or being funded through Milky Wire? I think it's 17 projects and we'll probably add another 12 or so. Uh, some disappear since we're not funding everyone continuously. But yeah, somewhere around a bit over 25, maybe that's going to be uh, total. And how much money have you been able to uh, put into these companies? This year, it will be a bit over $5 million. And uh, that's it for 2023. And since it's just been active for two years, it's uh, about I think $2.7 million, mostly from Klarna, which is the one that we started this with um, in the previous two years. Well, that's impressive for a uh, a startup. So, what's the goal? What? How do you expect to build this out? Or what are your targets for five years out, ten years out? Mm. This is an alternative to to pure offsetting, where you're just making a one to one, buying the carbon credits, and and making a claim that you're you're carbon neutral. And instead of focusing on making claim, you're you're focusing on maximizing your impact, uh, getting as much bang for the buck as, as possible. And we we hope to grow that as a as a concept, and we see that others are now also taking it on and and, and talking about it in the same way. Um, but so that's uh, encouraging. Uh, working with entities that are setting up more um, sort of public uh, standards and targets for how this can be done in a good way and, and expanded. Uh, but our fund, we also hope to grow, and it, I think we're seeing good good progress in that. And uh, I think there's a lot of room to. Uh, to scale climate finance to to many billions of dollars and something like this where where companies are are, are donating to to climate solutions could could definitely grow to be a um, a multi-billion solution and how large part of that milky wire fund will be that, that we'll see um i think we'll, we'll continue to have a good growth for sure a fast growth explain to us how this has a greater impact bang per buck than say getting carbon offsets Carbon credits. Carbon are, credits, sorry. Yeah, or no, they're also called offsets. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely fine. They are of various products. They, they go to various products, such as um, avoided emissions from renewable energy has been a, a very common one. Uh, also avoided emissions from stopping deforestation. And what we've seen in, in study after study is that these credits have a very hard time of living up to the promise that they actually avoid or, or, or remove one ton of carbon. Uh, and there's many well-publicized uh, news articles and The Guardian, for example, say 90% of avoided emission credits were non-effective. Uh, previously, we've seen 85% of, of credits and uh, overall, especially like wind energy and, and solar energy, that where we saw that the products were happening anyway. And there was just a, a small extra income, so you were not actually getting more avoided emissions or the effect was much smaller than was advertised. So it's it's quite difficult to have the that kind of effect that's advertised, and if you take that into account, it might not be very cost effective. Although we're not ruling out using credits, and, and some of these products, especially carbon removal products, will also issue a credit. So we're not against carbon credits. It's just that if you tie yourself to only buying credits, then you're missing out on a lot of very good and, and cost effective projects. And you also need to be critical and not just trust something just because it's certified by a, a carbon standard uh, that sort of says that this is uh, 
a certified product that's not enough as we've seen in a lot of investigations. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, this area is moving so quickly for those of us who are not experts. Uh, it, it's helpful to have a guide to shepherd us through this process. One of the things that you're working on is restoring nature and planting trees. What are the types of projects you're doing in that area? The things that we funded there is uh, tied to products that are very much on the ground and done with the people's um, by the people who are living on the land and on, on their conditions. So one project we funded is Just Dig It, which is uh, supporting farmers in, in Tanzania with education on how they can get more trees on their own land, which is something many farmers want because it uh, helps with their agriculture and gets more shade and, and water retention. And it's, it's productive for them. And they got uh, training in, in how to prune bushes and shrubs, et cetera, to grow them into more mature trees uh, under the conditions that they are. And they can see later on that this is an effective uh, intervention. These types of education uh, measures are increasing the number of trees uh, with, on these farmers' lands. But it's done with their, they, they set the conditions. They If they want to do it, they do it. And it's not a carbon credit project where they pay someone to, to plant trees. You're actually educating people to to do something that they they have an interest in and uh, this is a very sustainable project is called the method is called farmer managed uh, natural restoration and other projects are also working very close with communities where um, they're getting trees uh, and reforestation in a way that's suiting their needs uh, so i think that's the most sustainable way well certainly we wanted to have the people on the ground actually directing it in part because they're the ones who are actually going to be living with these challenges. And it, to the extent they're fully invested in the process, that's going to have better results than like some organization comes there, plants some trees and leaves. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And I'm going to be right back in one minute with Robert Hoagland, an expert in removing carbon from the atmosphere and investing in great solutions to help us reach our carbon goals. We'll be right back in just one minute. to a climate change and i've got robert hoagland on the program robert we were just talking about many of the different projects you're working on one of them relates to carbon removal can you tell us a little bit about that process and what are the types of projects you're working on and why are they important carbon removal is taking c2 out of the atmosphere and storing it in a durable way so that's different from avoiding emissions where it's based on a counterfactual that if we wouldn't have done this intervention these emissions would have continued so products that remove carbon are, are physically taking it out of the atmosphere uh, where someone emitted it before uh, and it's also different from what's called carbon capture and, and storage which sounds like the same thing but it's it's used to to describe a process where you capture carbon, uh, for example, from a coal plant, from a cement plant, where it's fossil emissions and you capture it at the, the smokestack, uh, you don't let it out in the atmosphere and, and, and they then take it out. So carbon removal uh, can be done in various ways and we can go through that uh, in a second. But bottom line is that it's needed to reach global net zero, which means that you don't have, you have as much removal as you, you have emissions. 
And it's going to be difficult to scale up removal a lot because we have 35 billion tons of, of CO2 uh, being emitted. So it's not going to remove all of that. Uh, we need to reduce emissions with you know maybe up to 90% first and then use carbon removal for the rest to reach net zero. But if you don't reach a net zero state, then warming continues. It's not enough to, to reduce emissions even with, with very large amounts. So you need to have that counterbalancing, uh, that net zero. And that's where carbon removal is crucial. And it could also be used to bring temperatures back down uh, if you want to do that uh, once you reach net zero, to go into the net negative uh, state, removing more carbon that is emitted every year, which would have the effect of lowering temperatures, although slowly, of course. So in terms of carbon removal processes, uh, what are the types of projects that uh, your organization is working on? We're trying to support a wide range of carbon removal projects because it stands clear that we need a portfolio of solutions. And the different types of methods that are available have inherent limitations in terms of land use or energy use, for example. And the portfolio approach makes it possible to, to get more carbon uh, without running into those limitations uh, quicker. The carbon removal sector and industry is very new. It's very nascent. Uh, of course, trees have been capturing carbon for uh, as long as the earth has been here almost, but that's limited by land. It will be part of the solution, um, but we also need other, other solutions. So one example is direct air capture. You're sucking CO2 out of the air with fans through, uh, for example, a filter that then filters um, tuned to, to CO2 molecules, so it captures it, and then you seal that off, have it in a vacuum, heat the filter up and release the CO2 again, and when now it's a pure stream of CO2, and then you can store it underground, for example, and then repeat the process. That's very energy intensive. You need a lot of electricity for that, uh, but it's a quite straightforward way of, of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. But the challenge, of course, is that it's, it's a very dilute gas. Uh, yeah, you need to pump a lot of air through those filters to, to capture CO2. So in terms of price per ton for direct air capture, what kind of price per ton is the technology at right now? And what uh, kind of level does it need to get to in order to become kind of an effective means of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere? The holy grail number is $100 per ton. And almost all direct air camp companies are saying that they will be able to reach that. And maybe a, a decade or so. And that's realistic, probably. It's, it's close to what people are paying in the EU for the EU emission trading system. It's also Sweden's carbon tax. It's not, I think if you reach that level, that, that it's definitely going to be cheaper than a lot of the most expensive emission reductions, and it's going to play a significant role, although it's much more expensive than where avoided emission carbon credits are and what people are used to pay for, for carbon. So but that's a, it's not a good comparison. The cost today it depends a lot on on the company. Uh, since they're doing this for the first time, many of them, it's basically a paying for a prototype or first of a kind facility, and it's going to be a lot more expensive then. So now then we're talking about in most cases uh, over five hundred dollars per ton. But then the volumes are very small, right? You're really paying for for the the Tesla Roadster prototype here. It's not uh, in mass production. Right. Right. So. Um... Are many governments giving any kind of subsidies to direct air capture or similar carbon removal processes to speed up the industrialization of it? Yes, the U.S. is the is the biggest uh, supporter of, of carbon removal. 
recently introduced in the Inflation Reduction Act, where there is, a, for example, what's called 45Q, which is a payment to companies that use direct air capture to put CO2 in the, in the ground of $180 per ton. It's a direct payment, a subsidy, and they can sell the tons to someone else. And that has gotten a lot of companies to, to start up, to also to uh, look to move to the U.S., and there's other forms of support. The U.S. is planning for direct air capture hubs, which also would include other technologies where companies can work together to, on both storage and capture and have renewable energy together. And, and the government will pay for the hubs or a lot of the hubs. The details are not known. But those types of supports are, are really um, big in, in comparison to what it existed before. And, and the U.S. is also giving a lot of R&D support. Sweden is making procurement of uh, another technology called BEX. We already have a lot of biomass emissions in our paper and pulp facilities and the, the uh, district heating, et cetera. And those are emissions that come from trees that already capture the carbon. So if you if you capture that at the, the smokestack, then you get negative emissions. And Sweden is, is procuring that and paying for, for carbon removal uh, and, and doing that this year. It's going to be about $200 million per year to start with. So that's some example. Well, it's good to hear that the U.S. is leading the world once again. It's been a while since we've been doing it in the environmental sector. So uh, kudos to the government for passing the IRA. You know, I've heard some people who are environmentalists kind of pushing back against carbon capture. I don't know if they they didn't really make a distinction between carbon capture and carbon removal, the same that you did. Do you hear other environmentalists pushing back against uh, carbon removal? And are you against carbon capture? Do you think that's a, a fool's errand for the fossil fuel companies? Carbon capture is definitely also going to have a role. I think it, it doesn't make much sense to do it on a coal plant, for example, because there's better and cheaper alternatives. So it's much cheaper to to do it with nuclear or wind or solar than to than to capture the emissions on, on coal power plants. But for cement factories, for example, uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's very difficult to decarbonize cement and capturing the CO2 is, is definitely a solution that could be viable there. There, there has been opposition, I would say, especially in the past from environmental movements, but it's uh, it's waning a lot because I think it's it's a lot of agreement on carbon removal is needed to reach net zero. Since since everyone became aware that emission reductions are not sufficient, I think the opposition against carbon removal per se has been has been going down. There's still some groups that are. are not wanting to have the focus on on these kind of technological solutions and just have all focus on emission reductions and it makes definitely sense to to put mo most of the focus there but unless we start building the sort of niche solutions as well they won't be available when we need them to to reach net zero in, in a couple of decades so we, we can't ignore carbon uh, removal today uh, it's on a tiny scale and we need to grow faster than wind and solar did to 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 reach the um, even limited role uh, envisioned for it to to reach net zero. So we need to invest a lot in, in that as well. Uh, and I think it's you're doing people you're doing everyone as a disservice if you're pitting carbon removal against emission reductions, as um, some people are doing because you definitely need both. Yeah, I'm kind of of the same camp. It seems like some kind of almost religious position to say we shouldn't uh, do carbon capture because it's going to encourage fossil fuel companies to continue to emit. Well, we do know that fossil fuel companies are going to continue to emit 
So that's just a fact of life. We may not like it, but if we can take some of those emissions out of the system, then we're all benefiting from it. The bottom line is we've got a goal that we've got to reach and any way that we can get there seems like a reasonable approach to be a part of the solution. Yeah, not for sure. So uh, where do you see this going from here in terms of what are the companies that you're investing in and think that are the market leaders or certainly some of the most exciting companies uh, in this in this field? Definitely see a lot of different technologies that are, are coming up. Uh, there's many exciting ideas in direct air capture, how this can be done in a more efficient way uh, in different climates uh, with different material by producing uh, other other things on, on the side of it, like hydrogen. And uh, there's still a need to come up with more ideas. We're not at the stage where we say we found the best ones, we just skated up. So there is a need to support companies that are, are coming up with new ideas. They still need support to uh, R&D to come up with better things. And then just get, get this tested in the real world. That's also what we do with the Milky Wire Climate Trans Transmission Fund, uh, making pre-purchases of these early carbon removal companies so that they can go out, test their idea, see if it's viable, uh, try to bring the cost down uh, and make it more, yeah, make it easier to reach these uh, these levels of carbon removal that we need to, to help reach net zero and further. Well, it sounds like great work there. Robert, appreciate your work on that front to give funding to some of these companies that aren't yet ready to have a marketable product, but hopefully we'll get there over time. So you listen to a climate change. We'll be right back in just one minute with Robert to uh, wrap up and talk about exciting stuff Robert is working on all over the world. You're listening to a climate change. I've got Robert Hoagland on the program. Robert's got an incredible background. One of the things that he's on the Mistra Sustainable Consumption Board. He's also on the EU Carbon Removal Expert Group, as well as the Science-Based Targeted Initiatives Technical Advisory Group. They all have fancy titles, so it's got to be important work that you're doing over there, Robert. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on there. Yeah, those are various roles like... Uh, um... I think that I was trying to raise ambitions and, and, and do the, the transition in a better way. The Mistress Name of Consumption is a, is a research project, a research program led by KTH as a uh, university in, in Sweden, trying to find new ways to scale and mainstream sustainable consumption practices. So since I've been involved in this work in Sweden to, to get new targets and involved with a lot of organizations, it was it was natural to us to, to help out there. And it's been encouraging to see all of the research that's ongoing on how uh, also consumption can become more sustainable. And that also ties in a bit to the science-based target initiative. So I was also part of the, the advisory group that helped um, develop the net zero standard. And the science-based target initiative is something that um, verifies targets for companies and, and sets standards for how that, the climate targets can be done in a, in a credible way. And it's very sort of well-revered among companies and the, the highest, the group that definitely have the, the strongest um, reputation around that. And a lot of companies sort of look to the science-based target initiative and look at what, what standards they're, they're setting. And uh, under their net zero standard, companies need to reduce their emissions 
up to 90% before they, they can use carbon removal, permanent carbon removal to neutralize the last 10% and, and reach net zero. But they also encourage companies to do what they call beyond value chain mitigation before that. So supporting climate projects to, to help reach global, global net zero faster. And that's what the fund in Milky Way does that we talked about before. It's a, basically a beyond value chain mitigation fund in a way that we set up for this purpose. And now the science-based target is also working on, on further guidance on how to incentivize companies to, to do beyond value chain mitigation. Because previously, if you're buying carbon credits, you could say that we're carbon neutral or something like that. And that's an incentive. Uh, it's sort of easy to do. But as we discussed, it's not always the most effective thing. So how do you incentivize companies to, to, to support climate products? What are the different types of products that can be supported? How do you generate funds for that? And there we have a proposing the internal carbon fee as, as a good as a good way of doing it, where companies tax themselves voluntarily and use the money to, to support projects. And, and yeah, the science based targets are working on, on this guidance. And um, I'm, I'm one of the in the bigger advisory group putting input into that. Uh, but it ties a lot into the work that I'm, I'm doing on the other areas as well, especially with the, the Milky Wire Fund. So tell us, how did you come up with the net zero standard? What was the process of doing that? So the, the science-based target worked on that for a number of years, and then I'm just in the advisory group, so giving some input on it. And there's a strong need for common language and, and, and common rules for what is net zero, because it can be done in, in many ways. And the science-based target basically said that we want a net zero standard that focuses on emission reductions, but also safeguards that uh, the removals that are used are of high quality and there's permanent carbon removal. And that's why they, they sort of set out that companies need to reduce their emissions with, with 90% first, and, and then you can use carbon removal. Because otherwise, you know, some companies have been maybe claiming net zero on the basis of just planting trees or, or maybe buying uh, traditional carbon credits, and that's not sufficient. Uh, if everyone does that, then the, the world is not reaching net zero. At some point, you only need you can only do carbon removal um, because there's no emission reduction still left to do, but that's quite far away. So supporting emission reductions within under companies and or countries is, is still important, but that can be done now under the sort of beyond value chain mitigation umbrella rather than using those things to count as fulfilling your own targets. You, you need to do your own emission reductions as well, but you also help finance finance them in other places. Even though it's not that easy to find cost-effective projects on, on reducing other other people's emissions, so a company needs or a country needs to get a ninety percent reduction in their actual emissions in order to get to net zero, and then they could do a ten percent carbon credit or I guess yeah. a carbon capture. Yeah, carbon removal. Yeah, carbon capture could be, could be a larger share because then you're not emitting it; you're you're stopping the, the emission at the um, yeah, at the factory, for example. But I do think the 90-10 can be a, a sort of a good rule, but certain sectors, such as aviation, uh, might have to do um, like 100% removals, uh, or depends on what's most effective, if it's sustainable aviation fuel, electric fuels, or if it's, it's carbon removal. So I do think that there will be some more flexibility later on to, to address these kind of things where uh, certain sectors are harder to abate and it might make more sense to, to do carbon removal and other sectors might be able to fully decarbonize without uh, using any carbon removal, essentially. So uh, tell us, uh, being from Sweden, uh, do you know Greta Thunberg? Have you met her? Um, yeah, I've I've seen her. I never talked to her, but I don't know her personally. 
<laughs> okay. Well, geez, you know, we're out here in California. We're all about celebrities. So, you know, you can't, yeah. have, don't blame me for asking. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, I, it's, she certainly has led an exciting movement there. And, mm. and I think it goes to what has been going on in Sweden for a lot of years in terms of environmental activism um, as a, a good seedbed for activists, would you mm. say? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, and the work that she's been doing, I think, really, really helped accelerate the transition uh, across the world, not just in Sweden. So uh, it's, uh, it's been, yeah, that's very encouraging. So where do you see the movement leaning in the future? I mean, what are the trends? What are the things that you think are most important to be supporting going forward? Are you talking about uh, sort of environmental groups, uh, the activists or, or in general? In general, what are the things, trends that you uh, you want to be behind? And mm. obviously mm. we've talked about some of them already. Yeah, personally, you can't focus on everything. I think my, my scope is a bit too wide already, but uh, I want to help accelerate carbon removal and, and get more money into this very, very small sector. It's uh, People will be shocked to know how small it is. It was just 16 companies that bought, bought more than a thousand tons of carbon removal in 2022, which uh, is uh, absolutely nothing, right? That's uh, still very few early adopters that are going in and supporting CDR. And even though there's some governmental support, uh, the level of support needs to scale, you know, many orders of magnitude for it to be uh, a solution that fulfills its role. And also, I, I enjoy working on, on the things that are solving some of the issues on how to do that in, in the best way, sort of conceptually. But that, that's an important thing. Another important factor is, is getting more support overall to, to climate solutions, not just carbon removal, both from companies, but from also from countries and, and scaling the finance. We see a lot of countries that also have sort of conditional targets that we can reach these emissions reductions if we if we can get um if we can get uh, more support from other countries. And then you know scaling the technologies that are, are facing out fossil fuels. We need to first of and foremost decarbonize the, the grid. And I think solutions like uh, nuclear power and, and wind and solar are super important in that. Uh, and then they need to be scaled up massively. Uh, and there needs to be a lot of reforms when it comes to, to permitting and you need new transmission lines. And it's, a, it's such a physical challenge, right? Like replacing all the infrastructure that has been in place for, for decades and uh, building a lot more electricity. It's uh, extremely challenging. The U.S. Is, uh, is planning to do a lot of this and is pushing ahead and there's a lot of money available, but now running into other issues that even though you have the money, you might have the difficulties building because of uh, how how difficult it is to, to get the permits, to, to you're getting appeals from neighbors, you're uh, having very difficulty building these transmission lines across states, etc. And I think other countries will have similar problems. And that's a new foe in the fight against climate change. Where it's not just enough to get the money. It's not enough to get everyone on the same page. You still need to have a system that can build all of these things as well. Yes. Uh, the scope of the challenges that face us are truly immense. And it's heartening to me that uh, we've got a lot of great people working on this, uh, you among many. And I appreciate the great work that you're doing. And uh, everybody check out Robert Hoagland, check out his company, Marginal Carbon, as well as uh, Milky Wire. It's been fascinating talking to you, Robert, and wish you all the best going forward. Certainly, we want to collaborate with the best 
best thinkers and doers out there in the world. And I, I really appreciate what you had said about sometimes you think your scope is a little bit too wide and you want to kind of narrow it down so you can have the greatest effect. I, I appreciate the kind of self-awareness there. I can relate to that. Some of us like to bite off more than we can chew because we want to want to help. And, and yet sometimes narrowing our focus may lead to even better and more mm. effective work on our part. So best of luck to you going forward. Everybody check out a climatechange.com. Take a look at some of our older episodes and download those. Robert, best of luck to you going forward and certainly uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. Great speaking to you. Well, you've been listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. Join us next week. Check us out, as I said, at climatechange.com. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>